All right, hello and welcome to. Sorry. That's okay. What was that? Were you showing <laughs> off your phone? Oh. No. Go That's ahead. how Matt makes sure I'm. Matt gives me neurological tests before. That's you right. Yeah, episode, exactly. Yeah. Uh, hello, welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Matt Taibbi. How are you doing, Katie? I'm okay. You? So uh, I just ate a whole bunch of Doritos before we went on the air. Ooh, what flavor? Just regular standard Doritos? Uh, they were standard, but you know, like, you know, if, when you, if you eat a sufficient quantity of Doritos, you have that feeling like you want to kill it. All right. So, so the four food groups, four uh, Democrats food suck. Groups, yeah. yeah. What, 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 what happened this week, Katie? Okay. So for Democrats suck, we have a bunch of stories. One of them is, I mean, we'll talk about this briefly just because it's like, why is tonight different from every other night uh, to quote uh, Passover satyrs. But uh, basically we have, guess who the bad guy is? One of the bad guys is. Adam Schiff. That is so funny. No, Matt, outside of the Russia gate world in which you, you live. No, he's he's he has uh, he's bad and evilness and, and no, he does have evilness. Uh, he's a, a spook, right? Yeah, he's of an intelligence community person. Yeah, so yeah. Well, Joe Manchin is. Oh, is right, Joe Manchin. Sorry, okay. yeah. yeah, yeah. So Joe Manchin, um, you know, it's not that surprising, but he and um, another blue dog, Dem uh, Tester, are opposing uh, a carbon tax and the massive social spending plan basically they're getting in the way of climate change mitigation how does the carbon and, tax work well the carbon tax works this way john tester sorry i didn't say his last name how the carbon tax was resurrected i'm reading an article of politico an unusual confluence of factors has brought back a climate change fighting policy that many democrats saw as politically toxic the carbon tax while the idea has long been the favored tool of economists, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is a strong supporter. Some Republicans like Mitt Romney and the American Petroleum Institute, uh, the Biden White House has always opposed pricing, pricing carbon. Uh, the president's staff has feared both the general politics and the specific fact that a carbon tax would violate the president's pledge not to raise taxes on Americans making under $400,000 a year. Instead, Biden places faith in a more complicated plan as the main driver to reduce uh, CO2 emissions. The Clean Electricity Performance Program drafted by Senator Tina Smith, Democrat of Minnesota, which would pay utilities to shift to clean energy and find those who didn't. But the CEPP now seems almost dead, a casualty of reconciliation, uh, Grim Reaper Joe Manchin. Proponents of the plan say that Manchin, despite his public opposition to the Biden version, spent weeks engaging in negotiations over modified CEPP that was friendlier to coal and natural gas, but eventually declared it unworkable. Uh, Manchin and the White House were negotiating on CEPP, said a source familiar with the talks, and Manchin was into something, likely a lesser version or a watered-down version, but still something. And then he decided no CEPP at all, so it's not like he had always been against it that was a new position now the white house is looking to meet targets without cepp yeah I'd, I'd like to see the legislation i mean they've had many many proposals for carbon taxes over the years and some of them um i didn't love because they had things like uh, carbon credits or carbon offsets some of the proposals involved doing things like creating a private market for trading trading carbon credits so like if a, if a company doesn't use uh, is well under its emissions limit. It gets a credit, and then you can trade those. Um, some some of the the schemes are kind of written up in a way that would essentially allow 
some private actors to kind of feed off of the 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 idea of a carbon tax like they, they would essentially subcontract out that process out to a bank or something like that um and huh. I, don't, I don't love that those ideas some some but if it's a straight tax i mean obviously tester and mansion are going to be against it because they're coal states right so right. or shale states or whatever it is i mean but what is gonna i mean how much is that actually in his district's best interest aren't i mean they suffer the consequences right from all this climate change and they just got it don't they they just need to shift to i mean this is a huge discussion i guess we should probably have someone talk about this on the show but don't we just ha- don't they just have to get with the program and shift to and create new jobs that aren't coal? I think it's pretty tough to go into a coal mining state where there's still coal that will that will still sell and still supports people and tell them that they gotta they just gotta get new jobs. I mean, you know, when Biden did that during the campaign, remember he his whole learn to code thing? Yeah. Um, I what I, about I, learn to weatherize? Yeah, the well, learn right. to code thing is ridiculous, obviously, because that's like re-education. Right. And this gets back to the whole, you know, history of NAFTA thing where, uh, you know, Clinton gave that speech and he promised, he said, look, we're going to do this. A lot of our sort of working class jobs or blue collar jobs are going to disappear, but we're going to retrain you for a new economy. And that didn't happen. Right. right? So they they kind of just they did the first part they they exported the manufacturing co- uh, economy overseas right. and then they didn't do the retraining part and they didn't create all the other, the a lot of the new jobs and so if you were to tell people in south dakota or west virginia hey don't worry about it we're going to retrain you for some other kind of work i i they're likely to be distrustful for that reason because they've right. already been through this you know if we lived in a world that actually where like you know things matter like health and not having environmental disasters, then I guess there'd be a bipartisan consensus around it. Yeah. But I mean, for, for a lot of people, the bipartisan, the, the bipartisan disaster, I mean, the disaster of climate changes is further off than the immediate disaster of not having a job. So that's why they're going to vote for. Um, but they could have jobs. They would just need politicians from both parties to say we're, we're going to do this don't worry we'll give you jobs but people won't do that they'll just use it as a political tool but i mean some of the disasters are happening now right but not in a way that's concrete enough for you know huge portions of the electorate i wouldn't think <sighs> so depressing i mean and i say this as somebody who's fully in favor of all climate change legislation i'm just trying to i think Sometimes when people say, well, why, why, why don't people vote for this? It's right. Right. Well, that's why it would have to be bipartisan, I guess, or it'd have to be a very good. I mean, what does Bernie say when he goes to coal country? You know, I've never been with Bernie in a coal state, so I don't I don't know. We have to look that up. His general position is that being out of work would be right uh, easier uh, if all of his programs were through. He'd probably have more public education so that people wouldn't have to be reliant on an uh, unskilled jobs working in mines or whatever it is yeah well mention mention is becoming used it's funny he's he's become like is it is there a separate category of fame for somebody who becomes famous in this way like in other words as what as just uh it's like just a pain in the ass or yeah like in, in other words he's in the news constantly yeah 
and it's not for anything that he's doing it's for something that he's not, he's not doing. doing right is there yeah is there another example of that lieberman lieberman it used to be for like what? that uh healthcare stuff right healthcare stuff right okay yeah that's right because you insurance yes of course yeah so basically he's blocking he's a co we have to what could co we need a coc word carbon co it needs to be cock in order to be really funny oh, really though. yeah so what could that be carbon offset uh consideration um, knowledge yeah kick off kick off so, yeah. so he's doing a real cock block yeah so imagine exactly. stop being a cock block yeah we have to come up with a word like maybe ma- mentioning would be like becoming famous for not doing something she she mentioned herself to to prominence by right by refusing to i don't know to i mean did margaret thatcher do that or no she was too preactive in her she was proactive in her cutting the state right right no but welfare state it could be it could be not doing anything like i mean i guess martin luther mentioned himself to prominence right by by refusing to but nobody actually he nailed road yeah 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 We'll have to work on this one. This one yeah, we're gonna to have to work on, on it. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that was the one. The other thing is that Bernie is is mad at um at Biden and Democrats for not doing a good job selling this plan. Uh, and of course, that means that uh, the media is being defensive. One of the problems we have is that millions of Americans don't know what's in the bill, because I think Congress has not done a good job. I don't think the president has done particularly good job in the media has done a pretty bad job in talking about what is in this legislation. So I have a real concern. People can agree with it. People can disagree with it. But we really have got to know what is in this consequential piece of legislation. And, and the, the- I, lo- I love it when he when he tells journalists they suck to their face. That's, I know. that's, one, of, that's one of my favorite Bernieisms. Yeah, well, they got and and not surprisingly, there was some defensiveness. So, uh, Wilson, if you scrolled right below that, there's another tweet from Brianna Keller and her tweet introducing the segment read, um, it's blame the media clock and Senator Bernie Sanders is right on time. Roll the tape. Senator Bernie Sanders put out a statement this weekend blaming the media as the main reason for why Americans don't know what's in the Build Back Better plan. He wrote, quote, at the top of the list is the reality that the mainstream media has done an exceptionally poor job in covering what actually is in the legislation. There have been endless stories about the politics of passing Build Back Better, the role of the president, the conflicts in the House and Senate, the opposition of two senators, the size of the bill, and very limited coverage as to what the provisions of the bill are and the crises for working people that they address. Let's take a look at what all he is saying here, because while the media should always be striving to do a better job, it's just not true that the media hasn't covered what is in the bill and doesn't continue to do so. Media outlet after media outlet has covered this. And it's very easy to find Spunt online if you want to know d- d- about it. And on television, I mean, just looking at CNN, so she just showed segment headlines. after segment about what is headlines. in the bill. In and his statement, showing... Sanders refers to how popular the policy provisions in the legislation are when Americans are polled about them. So that's what Democrats obviously should be selling. But one of Sanders' former colleagues, Al Franken, says Democrats could be doing a better job of that. There is so much in this package that 
And what I don't like is when we refer to it as the reconciliation package. package instead of the elements of it, because the elements are so popular. We can't do it without the reconciliation package. At the end of the day, I am absolutely convinced we're going to have a strong infrastructure bill and we're going to have a great consequential reconciliation bill, which addresses the needs of the American people. Let's talk about Sanders' complaint that the media focuses a lot on how much the bill will cost. Well, guilty, but the price tag matters. That price tag determines what will be in the bill of those policy provisions, and Democrats cannot agree on the price tag. It's the sticking point. I'm proposing is a one-time capital investment of roughly $2 trillion in America's future, spread largely over eight years. The $6 trillion that I originally proposed was probably too little. I believe we're going to all sit down and work together and come up with a $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. 1.5 was always done from, from my heart, basically what we could do and not jeopardize, not jeopardize our economy. Now, Sanders says the media talks too much Sanders. about the role of the president. Well, this Sanders. is the president's plan. It is Biden's agenda. These are his negotiations. Oh, now it's Biden's Arizona agenda? Senator I thought Kirsten this was Sinema, like the like left agenda, not, remember? Won't they even were share details like of what she wants with her fellow Democratic senators, including Sanders. It appears she's got Sanders. one negotiating channel, Sanders. and it's with the White House. So the president is the linchpin to these talks, walking that line between moderates like Cinema or West Virginia's Joe Manchin and progressives like Sanders. Sanders says Sanders. there is too much attention on she's, these two she's moderate like a senators. Slavic thing, but like instead of a, a, dead a, without, yeah. it's like a yeah, Sanders. 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 My concern with Mr. Manchin is not so much what his views are. I disagree with him, but it is that it is wrong. It is really not playing fair that one yeah. or two people think that they should be able to stop what 48 members of the Democratic caucus want, what the American people want, what the president of the United States wants. Senator uh, Sinema's position has been that she doesn't, quote, unquote, negotiate publicly. And I don't know what that means. It, 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 we don't know where she's coming from. He doesn't know because he's not in a room with her negotiating. And Sanders is not in a room with Manchin negotiating. The president well, joked, in changed. fact, that it would be homicide hmm. to put them together. Why? Because they're being jerks to each other using yes, the mainstream media. Sanders also trolled Manchin. Oh, with an so now he's a piece of the Charleston of, Gazette Mail, Manchin's newspaper. The mainstream media, the media that he is blaming for not right. selling the provisions in the bill, providing oh Sanders God. a platform to sell the provisions in the bill She's as he blames so them. There is one thing that everyone in the Senate can agree on, though, as usual recess. More time to not sit in a room together and negotiate as another self imposed deadline swiftly approaches. Okay, she's so fucking dumb with all due respect. Like, you don't, that's not an own to be like, Sanders criticized the media and yet he uses the media. I know. Like, I know. he's supposed to boycott it. Like, you know what else he criticizes? Politics and politicians and our broken political system. And yet he's a senator. What? Right. Like, you're five years old, lady. Maybe, no, you're like, tw this is a good argument for like an eighth grader to make. Right. Yeah. Like no, if an eighth grader made it, I'd respect it. But you're just basically showing instead of telling. Uh, you also are an idiot because none of the things you're showing correspond to what you're saying. Like you don't even know how to do a screen capture. You're like, he called them jerks. This shows a headline which doesn't say jerks. Like do the pull quote. Get the fucking pull quote.
Like right. I could produce this better from you at home on StreamYard. Okay. Right. Right. I don't yeah. even know OBS and I don't have to know OBS. I could just StreamYard my way through this. And uh, also she thinks it's an own because she shows Al Franken who makes a good point. And the thing about Al Franken is he was always very good at this, maybe in part because he was an entertainer, but he was very good at the moment, like messaging and presentation. David Sirota reminded us of how great he was on Gorsuch when he highlighted how Gorsuch basically ruled in a way that would have incentivized a man freezing to death. Mm-hmm. Remember that mm-hmm. um, because he was fired for like leaving a trailer behind because he was about to freeze to death. And and uh, Gorsuch ruled that that firing was justified. But I think he's right that the Dems could and should frame this as a, as as, you know, the health care bill, the leave no child behind bill or whatever good framing they could use using an issue that has mass support and popular support instead of the infrastructure or reconciliation bills, which it has is a little bit abstract, I think. But you don't that's not an own to show that there are times when Bernie has used the word infrastructure bill. Right. Yeah. Like, what the hell is wrong with you? No, I mean, not have any friends who were like, this isn't a good segment. I I think I think the the first six seconds of her segment was good where she had Here's what's in the bill, right? The four stories. And of course, the reason that's deceptive is because there's 50 million stories about the reconciliation bill. Yes, there are a few that are about what's in it. Right, right. But overwhelmingly, when you you pick up a story about the reconciliation bill, you're not really learning what's in it. I mean, uh, when when I was on Real Time um, a couple of weeks ago, you know, we were we were talking before the show that you know, nobody knows what's in this bill, right? Like right. they're they're having debates about it, but nobody knows what's what's actually in it. That's because the priority always is let's let's sell the conflict, let's sell let's sell the horse race, the horse race aspect of it. You know, it's personalities, it's mansion versus so versus Bernie. You know, that that that's mostly what we're doing. You know, you and I talked about this before. I, I I think they're selling. They're doing a very poor job of selling this. They 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 could have done this in a number of different ways. They could have either done this as separate bills, which and and made it like a you know a sequential thing where they talked about each issue uh, intensely for a period of weeks. And I think that would have been really really successful in this in this atmosphere because people are very interested in social justice and that sort of thing. Like if you if if you just decided to talk to talk about child care, you know, for three weeks and right. made that made that a bill. I think you would get a lot of uh, you would it would become clear, first of all, that it had a lot of had widespread support. And you know, it would be very hard for the for the press to talk about right, to avoid true. avoid avoid talking about the actual issue. Called this the child way, care, the child care bill. Right. Yeah. Calling it a reconciliation bill. It's like, it's just like, almost like just calling it a number, you know, here's, it's, a, it's, here's yeah. the $3.5 trillion bill, you know? And so it emphasizes the number. It emphasizes the fact that it's a bill. It doesn't it really emphasize what's in it. And so he's right about that, you know? Um, and you're, and, and yeah, that, that whole technique that she uses, it's, it's similar to, you know, the guest we had on uh, Josiah Zayner, you know, I, I, characterized him as one of the most censored people in America because he's been kicked off basically every platform. Right. But then people are like, oh my God, here's the most censored person. And he's he's profiled in the New York Times once or whatever, right. whatever it is, right? It's like, 
that's not really an own, you know? Right. Yeah. It doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. It is a similar logic. It's like you think that you're disproving something and you're not. But, you know, it, the media becomes the media is so not used to being um, held accountable for anything. Bless their hearts that they really just become dithering idiots when they are confronted. And it reminds me of that woman whose name I can't remember who when Bernie Sanders was critical of the Washington Post, she was like, when you have Marty Baron himself, but she's like, when you have the publisher of the publisher of the Washington Post himself calling it a conspiracy theory, it's just like, how do you think that's a good defense I know. to quote the publisher of the newspaper that's being accused of having a bias? Like when you have the one of the most like incriminated people ever, pushing back on this claim and calling it a conspiracy theory. I mean, Jesus Christ, is there no decency in the world? <laughs> at at the long last, is there no decency? Yeah. Yeah. Have you no decency, sir, so Bernie? It, it's, it's funny. Bernie Sirota will probably recount the story too. Bernie once called a whole bunch of reporters to his office, like literally summoned us. And we sat in his office and he, he basically just told us how dog shit we were at our jobs. And that was the entire purpose of the meeting. I, I, I remember just sitting there wanting to burst out laughing the entire time, but he really means it. And he's, and he's, of course he's right. And the honest answer, if reporters wanted to answer it, honestly, if Anderson Cooper wanted to answer it, honestly, or, or whoever this person is, what's her name again? Uh, Brianna Kaler. Brianna Kaler. Right. Yeah. Like, she would say, look, we're a business. We got to make, you know, we have competing uh, dynamics here. We got right. to make money and make this stuff interesting. You want to help with help us with that. You know, if you want us to, to be in the business purely of education, why don't you appropriate us a billion, you know, a couple of billion dollars so that we don't have to worry about our profit margins this year. Mm. You know, that's the, that's the honest way to answer this. Right. They can't do that. Yeah. They just got to get defensive yeah. instead. All right. So for Republicans suck. I think we got to we got to talk about the elephant in the room, which is the death of Colin Powell. Yeah. So, for the purposes of the, purposes of this segment, I'm going to call him a Republican because he was one once upon a time. Right. So, you know, sort of, sort of, right? He dies, and it, it's the 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 response was interesting to initially because it looked like there was some confusion over how they want how the press wanted to deal with this initially like did they want to present him as a heroic figure did they not want to do that it was, like it wasn't clear right and then pretty quickly um it kind of shifted to you know let's let's gild the lily on uh on colin powell and there was a lot of you know sort of celebratory uh positive coverage that de-emphasized certain things from his past and so for for clarity's sake i think we should it might be useful for us to go back and look at a video of the of of the key moment and what i yeah. think is the key moment in his life wilson if we could just see the him speaking on the floor of the un unfortunately we don't have any footage of that massacre in vietnam oh right i cannot tell you everything that we know but what i can share with you when combined with what all of us have learned over the years is deeply troubling. What you will see is an accumulation of facts and disturbing patterns of behavior. The facts in Iraqi's behavior, Iraq's behavior, demonstrate that Saddam Hussein and his regime have made no effort, no effort, to disarm as required by the international community. 
Indeed, the facts and Iraq's behavior show that Saddam Hussein and his regime are concealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. Okay, we I think we've all seen the video, right? Like he ends up kind of doing the the Alice's restaurant thing where he's got the grainy photos and this 28 by seven color glossy photos with circles and arrows with the, you know, the, the alleged hidden weapons of mass destruction uh, and all that. And, um, and this ends up being a key moment in helping sell the war. Now, people young may not have seen that. Really? Yeah, that's right. I, I forget that. So for, for those of you who don't know, this is yeah. 2003 uh, Bush, George Bush, Dick Cheney, uh, and Dick Cheney, especially, and Donald Rumsfeld really, really, really wanted to go to war in Iraq for a variety of reasons that were that range from stupid to come to like rapacious and, yeah. and nefarious. Right. Um, mostly on the on, on the latter end. Powell, as we now know, um, uh, along with the uh, British Home Secretary, J Jack Straw, uh, was vehemently against going into Iraq. In fact, he and his staff thought it, the idea was so ridiculous that they were convinced it would peter out before it ever got to the point of being a serious consideration. When things really started heating up, he ended up scheming with Jack Straw to get Straw to, to talk to Tony Blair, to have Blair talk to Bush to try to talk him out of going into Iraq. Then because Powell was so outnumbered in his own uh, administration that he he felt he had a better shot of reach of reaching Bush through Tony Blair than he did through um, anybody in his own office. He thought the idea was ridiculous. He famously uh, called Bush into a meeting and he said, "Look, you break it, you own it. If you invade right. this country, you're going to be the proud owner of 18 fractious uh, territories that don't get along with one another. It's going to be a disaster. You're going to have to govern and won't be able to do it." Right. Like defeating him won't be a problem. He's he's a military guy. He knows this. Right. He says, right. says the winning is not going to be the issue. The issue is going to be what comes afterwards. Right. And so he's he's got every objection in the book. He's he's intellectually opposed to it. He's opposed to it on the grounds of losing life uh, for something that he thinks is not maybe necessary. Right. He doesn't believe the intelligence. None of it. Ultimately, though, he does it. He get, he they induce him to give a speech to the United Nations precisely because it was known that he had objections to it. Uh, and so the whole idea was to send Colin Powell to the United Nations to give a speech on why we have to go into Iraq. And the whole concept, the subtext of it was, if they could even convince me, then right. you too must believe it. And Powell's explanation for why he's done that has always been terrible. Like he's he said, he said things like, I'm not the quitting type um, or I'm not the resigning type. Uh, there was another explanation that he um, was afraid of the people who would lose their jobs in the State Department if he, if he were to resign. Uh, you know, obviously, there are larger issues at stake. Uh, he, and, he and Jack Stroud actually talked about, about what to do. Uh, like, in other words, if they were both to resign, like what, what would likely happen what would likely happen is that Blair would likely pu have pulled out at that point, and that would have probably stopped the war. So he he was aware that he had the power to prevent this whole thing, or at least or at least he had a strong shot at doing that, and he didn't do it. Now and it, he went to the to the UN, 
and he lied sort of in the most brazen fashion, right? Like that little clip is just a segment of it. Yeah. Okay. So what's he, I mean, that's a good word. I'm not a quitter is a great way to, is a great like euphemism for lying. I, I yeah. want to start using that. Why did you like, you catch someone like cheating and they lied to you about it? Why? I just, I'm not a quitter. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, does that make any sense at all? Why is this important to bring up now? Well, a year ago, uh, the, the New York Times did a story on Powell where they kind of revisited all, all of this. Matt, if we could open up that Times story and you see they've, they've got the, the nice picture of them. It's sit, sit down. It's kind of a retrospective. And if you scroll down to a paragraph that begins with the benefit, uh, we will see something really interesting. It goes, with the benefit of 15 years in hindsight, it's possible to see Powell's UN speech as a signal of event in the broader story of American governance. It is exhibit A for the argument that would help propel Donald Trump to the White House in 2016, that the U.S. government was not on the level, that the establishment figures of both parties were at once fools and manipulators. In June, when Powell told CNN that he would be voting for Joe Biden in November, Trump shot back on Twitter. Quote, didn't Powell say that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction? They didn't, but we went off to war. So this, uh, I, I thought this was interesting to bring up because this is a rare example of sort of an establishment news organ, the New York Times, saying something that is undoubtedly true, right? Like yeah. that. It's like Spencer Ackerman wrote it. Uh, did he write it? I didn't... No, it sounds like it, though. Who right. Yeah. It? Yeah, exactly. So so it's a, yeah, right. It's in that. um in that tone right of how because spencer ackerman's book of course says that you know how trump create help create well how how obama well the, how 9 11 helped create trump 9 11 helped help create trump and this was this was this the signature moment in that right um and by the way there's another inter very interesting moment in this article this is after he's replaced by condoleezza rice he mournfully predicted to others that his obituary's first paragraph would include his authorship of the un speech which as we noted on Monday, turned out to be exactly the case. It was in the first sentence of his, obi of his obituary. But the, the thing is, the Times last year was right about this. In other words, they, they captured the fact that, look, this, this moment of like rank dishonesty and sort of betrayal became a symbol of something that Donald Trump exploited. And, you know, let's be conscious of that now right and so what happens after after powell dies they replayed the entire thing they start they, they immediately after he dies they yes in the, in the initial obituary it was in the first paragraph then they started downplaying it again and right away trump once again jumps on this Here, okay here's the quote wonderful to see colin powell who made big mistakes on iraq and famously so-called weapons of mass destruction uh be treated to de in death so beautifully by the fake news media. Uh, hope that happens to me someday. He was the classic rhino, if even that, always being the first to attack other Republicans. He made uh, plenty of mistakes, but anyway, may he rest in peace. So and, great. Right, but anyway, may rest in peace. Yeah, exactly. It's so classically Trump. See, by the way, uh, uh, rhino is Republican in name only. Republican in name only, right. And so... Um, if we could just open the the Politico story. So instantly everybody jumps on Trump for 
for doing this. Opinion, Trump's postmortem roasting of Powell could burn him in the end, right? And I don't know. the subheadline? Yeah, smearing the late general to gain attention is not the way to patch things up with the social media platforms that suspended him. But this is just one of many varieties of story that basically said, like, you know, this is an example of why Donald Trump, you know, doesn't get it and, you know, still, still needs to learn his lesson and all this stuff. Whereas the reality is, like, if if they had done a more honest examination of, of Powell's legacy, he wouldn't have had room for that. Like, this is going to be a win for Trump. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's, there's a lot of weird, interesting stuff that's in that political piece, which is mm-hmm. by Jack Schaefer, mm-hmm. um, who's their senior media writer who i like by the way i he he writes a lot of interesting stuff yeah me too uh i was kind of surprised because i mean maybe not have been the best example there were there were a lot of other stories like that well i was okay but i'm a little surprised because doesn't smearing the late general to gain attention is not the way to patch things up with the social media platforms that suspended him kind of suggests that that's like that'll get him removed or that's one of the reasons he should have been removed or I can't really tell if that's a like descriptive or is that just a, is that not is that an like an endorsement of of the treatment of Trump or is that just saying what how it is and how it's going to happen well it's like if you want to get back on Twitter and back on Facebook like this isn't the way to do it basically right I think that's what he's saying right but isn't that kind of a scary reality yeah of course like that you're criticizing no matter what, like you're criticizing someone, a respectable, a serious person. And I can't tell if he's indicting. Is he indicting like like social media companies for having that as a criteria? No, it doesn't sound like it. Right. No. I mean, here's another example, uh, Matt, if you could see in the chat. Um, I mean, here, another example is CNN, which naturally let leap to his defense. Donald Trump yet again proves there's no bottom. Look, I I I kind of like Colin Powell. Like I mean, relatively speaking, I thought I thought he had a lot of there, there were things there were things about him that that were that were far less horrible than some of the others. He like a lot of real military people seemed to have an actual reluct- reluctance to go to war unless it was absolutely necessary. I mean, his his idea about going to war was don't do it. And if you do do it, go in with massive force, but, and don't draw it out. Right. Like, I think that was, but he, he seemed to have a little bit of a reluctance to actually go to war. He was certainly reluctant to go to war in Iraq. You know, uh, he's, he's, he said a lot of things that, you know, were interesting that suggested that he at least thought about stuff. He, he wasn't like a, a raging ideologue, like the rest of the people in the Bush administration. Yeah, but it makes in some way, ways that, but makes, that makes it, it worse. worse. Yeah. Right, exactly. Exactly. Like uh, he, there's a really good tweet from Spencer Ackerman. Okay, whatever else Colin Powell achieved in life, and it was a lot, he was the only man who could have stopped the war in Iraq and instead he chose to swallow his doubts about the disaster he knew it would be and sell the invasion. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and it was public. And so ra- rather than go into that, 
you know, which which also would have meant going into the the revisiting how disastrous Iraq was, how how morally wrong it was, how you know how we haven't gotten out of the habit of thinking that way. Um, you know, instead they they kind of they kind of moved as quickly as they could to the to the format that they're comfortable with, which is this kind of lionization of mainstream figures. Yes, he had some faults, but overall he was, um, you know, he was an honorable, respectable man, which is, you know, I, th I think people would probably say, I, I know people who work for Colin Powell, right? Like, and, and they, they had a lot of respect for him, but that decision was disastrous. I mean, it was a disastrous decision, right. both, both in terms of Iraq and in terms of future politics. And they're continuing it, I think, by glossing over how bad it was. This is exactly the kind of stuff that, that creates an opening for somebody like Trump, because he can say, look, they're, they're, they lied then, they're, they're, they're still lying now. You know, when, when the news broke on Monday morning, we were kind of unsure of how they were, where they were going to go with it, but it, it, right. it became pretty clear, clear quickly. And then that's, we talked about this with Spencer too. It's just part of this larger narrative of not dealing with how massive a, a, a moral uh, transgression uh moral and political transgression the iraq invasion was yeah and 9-11 and the war on terror and all that stuff so and the yeah and the fallout from that so i thought that was interesting the fact that he that he predicted it would be in his first line in his obituary yeah. in the times and the times actually did that was really interesting and that was when he was replaced by uh by condoleezza rice yeah well let's try to make sure that she's remembered for shoot boot shopping during katrina Oh, that's right. I forgot and about that. I'm going to see Camelot. Yeah. Oh, Spamalot or Camelot? Spamalot. Sorry, Spamalot. I can't decide whether that makes it worse or better that she went to a Monty Python show. I if I were a Monty Python fan, such as you, yeah. I think I'd be offended. Yeah, I think I'm offended. All right. What do we have for? Uh... So, for isn't that word we have? Uh, isn't that weird? We have a story from Phantom Asfanta, um, who's a big fan of the show, sometimes also makes clips from the show. So thank you so much, Phantomus. The 50 pound, as in currency, not weight, 50 pound nighttime erection tracker for impotent men. Creators of penis ring-like device say it could help spot root cause of erectile dysfunction. Root. Yeah, I know. Uh, men normally get three to five. I did not know this. Okay. Men normally get three to five erections a night and less can be a sign of a health issue. The new sensor will measure amount of nightly erections, it should be number of nightly erections, and how long they last. This will help determine if problems keeping it up are physical or psychological. Developers hope at-home treatment will break taboo on erectile dysfunction. So uh, it connects to an app. It monitors a man's nocturnal erections to assess the health of their member. Is that it's like an accepted word? Is that like in the AP style book? Member? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, this is British, so maybe it is there. Hmm. It's more. It is hoped the gadget set to cost 50 pounds when it goes on sale next April could help the millions of men who suffer from erectile dysfunction by uncovering the root cause of their member malfunction. Yeah, they really like member. So if a man has under three erections a night, it could indicate he has a cardiovascular health problem that is a problem with his circulation or another condition such as diabetes. It's called the full Adam Health Center kit. 
is this is this true it says if untreated reduced blood flow to the penis can eventually cause internal tissues inside the organ to scar further restricting blood flow creating a a vicious vicious cycle that sees erectile dysfunction get progressively worse but if men are suffering from erectile dysfunction also called impotence but having a normal number of erections while asleep this could suggest the issue is mental psychological yeah right Helping men uncover which issue might be causing their impotence and tracking improvements over time is the aim of the new gadget called the Atom Sensor. So you slip on the sensor so that it fits like a ring attached by a strap around the base of their penis before going to sleep. So designed, the, the product is designed to be small, compact, and completely non-obtrusive. You won't even know it's there after a few minutes. You could probably wear, wear it out, right? Wear it out of the house, yeah. They're recommended to wrap a loose dressing around their penis before attaching the sensor, however. What if you wake up and it's like... 17? Yeah, you had 78 erections last night. Yeah. I'm not sure I'd want to know that. Guess what other word that they use that has two syllables and starts with an M? Manhood. Yeah. I'm partial to throbbing man shaft. What's that from? I mean, it's not from anything. I just think that that's... that's, If you're going to use the word, you might as well use that. If you, yeah, if you, I, I, what, that's an interesting thing at the bottom of the screen, Adam T score. This is a blended metric we use to evaluate the overall quality of your night erections during a measurement. Every man will have a different initial Adam T score. So there's no normal range. However, over time, an increasing Adam T score will indicate that your night erections are improving. Yeah. So they don't, it's an image of a guy like climbing a ladder, but also looking like he's doing a kind of dance. There's a lot going on in that weird little, well, so he's animated. Graphic. What he's doing, he's 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 Adam trying to get aided. Yeah. Oh, it is animated. Yeah. Adam. Yeah. I mean, he he Sorry. wants he wants to reach the chalice of the per- perfect right. direction. Yeah, that but, is what is. Yeah. But you but a blinking chalice. Do you know we have a word? Oh, chasm, chasm. Yeah. Chasm. Yeah. Chasm. We should say. Instead of chalice, we should say callus. Callus, callus. Yeah, he wants the, cal- to read, the callus of the perfect. He, he wants to over. He wants to cross that chasm between him and the callus. <laughs> and then the callus. <laughs> but the the. So and they're being sensitive about it because they don't they they don't want to give you like a flat. Here's how you compare right. it to every other dude. Right. They don't or, want you to feel abnormal or inadequate. Like by by the way most of the people right. who live on your street are at least 30 atom points higher than you higher than you yeah right There's even a star in the in the callus so you're measured against yourself always right yeah right it's only it's not I about like where don't compare yourself to others it's just about your relative judge your do not judge yourself by according to the number of other men's erections one day men will be judged not by the number of their erections but by by the content of their that's up to us. That's on us. Yeah. What is it that we that. wish for and hope for by the content of their what? Yeah, I, I, I'm blanking. Like he's wearing tap shoes. Has like a would Gene that, Kelly that, vibe. Would that help or 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 hinder the tap Adam shoes? score? I think men who tap dance probably have pretty high quality erections. I would. Think. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure Gene good, Kelly did. Good blood flow. Gregory Hines too. I bet. Oh yeah, R.I.P. I mean, both yeah. of them, but Gregory Hines is young. All right. Well, that. I think that's good news. Yeah, so Adam, good news, Adam guys. Sounds like sounds like um sounds like a product um, we, we we would like to have. Yeah. So here's a product we don't want. 
Isn't that, isn't that terrible? Uh, they're putting guns on robot dogs now. It's only a matter of time. So um, it was only a matter of time. Now that time has come. Yep. So I think we've actually done a segment on the dogs before, right? Yes. Boston Dynamics. Boston Dynamics. I don't think it's yeah. the same company here, though. But that's it? what, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'll just read the, the lead from this um, from this story in The Verge. Uh, quadrupedal, is it quadrupedal or quadrupedal? Quadrupedal robots um, are one of the most interesting developments in robotics in recent years. They're small, nimble, and able to, tra to traverse environments that frustrate wheeled machines. So, of course, it was only a matter of time until someone put a gun on one. I don't know about if, of course, was... Right. I don't know how resigned we should be to that, but yeah. yeah. The image above shows a quadrupedal robot, a Vision 60 unit built by U.S. firm Ghost Robotics that's been equipped with a custom gun by small arms specialists, Sword International. It seems the gun itself, dubbed as the Spur, or Special Purpose Unmanned Rifle, is designed to be fitted onto a variety of robotic platforms. It has uh, 30 times optical zoom, thermal camera for targeting in the dark, and an effective range of 1,200 meters. Warthog production. Stay strong, it says. Okay. Now we have a robot. Ghost Robotics and Sword International have teamed up to create a rifle-toting robot dog. Head, Called the Special like. Purpose Unmanned Rifle, or SPUR, the system adds a 6.5mm Creedmoor rifle from sword to one of Ghost Robotics Quadrupedal Unmanned Ground Vehicles, or QUGVs. The SPUR made its debut on the show floor at the Association of the U.S. Army's main annual convention in Washington, D.C., which opened yesterday. Though Ghost Robotics is partnered with a number of other companies to explore defense and security applications, among others, for its QUGVs. This appears to be the first example of one of these unmanned systems with an actual weapon mounted on it. Unarmed examples of the QUGV are notably already in limited use with the U.S. Air Force's 325th Security Forces Squadron at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida and are being tested by other units within that service. The exact configuration of the 6.5mm gun inside the spur module, how much ammunition it contains, and how hard it might be to reload, are all unclear. Ghost Robotics has said that spur can be instructed hey. remotely to chamber the first round from an unloaded state, as well as clear the chamber and safe the gun. I'm a little nervous about them needing to In reload already. In terms of the weapon itself, SARD does offer derivatives of the 5.56x 45mm R15M16 family, as well as similar, okay. but larger caliber guns, more akin oh. to the Armalite R10 or Knight's Armament Company SR25. Those rifles come in calibers such as 7.6251mm, 6.5mm Creedmoor, 300 Norma Magnum, 338 Lapua Magnum, and 338 Norma Magnum. It's also headless, shouldn't we mention that? There's no head on it. Yeah, uh, I don't think the Boston Dynamics dogs had heads on really? them either yeah well either way yeah it's a weird i mean i maybe it's better because the more realistic the, the closer it gets to cute although i don't think those are ever going to be cute yeah do we want it to be cute no like, I, don't, I don't i don't think we want it to be cute we don't i mean that's all that the dog itself is almost cute right, right? but we i mean the headless dog you mean even the headless dog is a little bit cute the legs are so realistic enough that you, right. you almost you almost like right. it and you almost um, feel sorry for it. It's almost endearing because it has no head. So you feel bad for it. 
right like a really bad like a really messed up stray dog we should maybe start having a segment that calls like it's called something like sci-fi movies become reality yeah because not long ago this exact idea was satire uh and if we could uh wilson just see the clip from one of my favorite movies paul verhoeven's robocop yeah for for those who aren't familiar with the movie let's get him on you think he'll come on paul paul verhoeven yeah yeah i'd love to i mean i'm a huge fan of his uh all of his movies the concept is this is a future world where a capitalist a proto-capitalist nightmare or future scenario where um, governance is, has has recessed to the point where uh, big cities, in this case Detroit, have become um, ungovernable. And so they've hired a big corporation called OCP to take over policing uh, because the state is too broke to do it. And you know, basically, there's it's it's a sort of satire about the corporatization of society in this within this idea so we're we're in detroit there's a lot of crime theory you know in the story and ocp has two competing visions for policing one of them is robocop which is where they take the body of a dying police officer or near dying police officer and they robotize it uh and this is supposed to be the more humane uh heroic uh officer because he's got some humanity still left in him right right uh he still has the remnants of a conscience and then the other idea kind of like colin powell kind of like colin powell right yes uh and the other idea in the movie is a is sort of dreamt up by the the evil wing of the company which is of course entirely focused on cost right and doesn't want to deal with a human being and the upkeep of it and all those other things, or even the you know the remnants of a human body. So they come up with this, and this is the 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 other idea for policing. We believe an efficient police force is only part of the solution. No, we need something more. We need a 24-hour-a-day police officer, a cop who doesn't need to eat or sleep, a cop with superior firepower, and the reflexes to use it. Fellow executives, it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to the future of law enforcement. Ed 209. I love the fact that it's like an electric razor with feet. I know, it's so scary. Ed. <laughs> This scene is great on so many levels. Do you want to explain what's happening? Yeah, so this gigantic robot with uh, automatic rifles is, and two feet walks into a conference room, and all these executives can't tell whether they're impressed or terrified. Mostly they're, they're impressed. is a self-sufficient law enforcement robot. 209 is currently programmed for urban pacification, but that is only the beginning. After a successful tour of duty in old Detroit, we can expect 209 to become the hot military product for the next decade. Dr. McNamara. We'll need an arrest subject. Mr. Kenny. Yes, sir. McNamara. Can you give us a hand, please? Yes, sir. 
Mr. Kinney is going to help us simulate a typical arrest and disarming procedure. Mr. Kinney, use your gun in a threatening manner. Pointed at Ed 209. Yes, sir. So he points at the guy talking at first. And then, and then he puts it at the robot. Yeah. Please put down your weapon. You have 20 seconds to comply. I think you'd better do what he says, Mr. Kenny. So then he throws the gun on the floor. You now have 15 seconds. The robot doesn't get it. It's malfunctioning. You have 15 seconds. <laughs> They're trying to figure it out. And very typical of this director, it's overkill. Major overkill. And they he was trying to hide behind the other people. Yeah. This is the last line here. Huh? Somebody want to call a goddamn paramedic? <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, obviously the guy's been shot 5,000 times. Or yeah, paramedics paramedic won't work. Yeah. yeah. But so, so we're, we're now living in this world where, because they've already deployed these things, right, as cops in certain parts of the world, right, for the COVID, you know, enforcement, like stay, stay in your homes. And it, ha it has some of those audio messages in some places. But as, as we just heard, the military, like the Air Force already uses these for some things. So are we going to live in a world where we have so robot scary. robot patrol officers with guns? We right? need to set up public screenings of this movie. <laughs> right? <laughs> From the halls. We need to like screen it at the halls of Congress, in the halls of Congress. Because this, this is going to happen. Please take out your identification card. Show me your license and registration, please. You have two seconds to comply. Like, I think people people were freaked out when the robot dog thing started to. Yeah. And now they're going to put guns on it? Yeah, it's really no. scary. I, like, I draw the line at that. The dog, the, the robot dog thing for me was, was kind of a 50-50. Yeah, this is bad, folks. What can we do about it? There's nothing we can do about we it because we got to put put them down. We have to surrender these dogs. They'll spend one ten billionth of the defense budget to buy fifty million of them, and they'll be walking up and down our neighborhoods within like eight seconds. This is going to happen. I mean, they they will of course test it out first in places like Yemen and you know Niger, right? right? Afghanistan's too late, but they. I'm sure they would have done that too. I mean, I was all for this when those rescue dogs were for, for like when, when the when the robot dogs were for rescuing people. Oh yeah, that's good. That's a public good, right? Right. I'm not sure how necessary it is them for them to be armed for that job, though. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't like this at all. No, put like, no. We need to disarm robot dogs. This to dogs. me is like a very very negative development because it's like it's like voicemail with guns. Why is it like voicemail? Well, you know how you can't get a human being on the phone anymore, you know? Yeah. Hey, my, my power just went out. Can I find out, like, how long that's going to be? Please press 9, you know, hear a recorded message from 
whatever. Like you, you can't get a person when it's an emergency or whatever. Now we're going to have that same one-way communication style with an armed robot dog. You don't seem as distressed about this as I do. I am. I I'm trying to figure hard. out how to take how to. I'm I'm trying to arrange some screenings of this film of RoboCop. That's how distressed I am. Really? Okay. I mean, I guess I'm jaded and resigned. I mean, I, I'm sure inside you're 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 yeah. broken up. I I was actually really troubled. Disturbed. Like, well, when I I most news stories make me laugh. This one, right. this one, like actually threw legit, me a little bit. Yeah, it is pretty seriously anti, pretty seriously terrible. I, I guess part of it is because I'm one of those people who wants to throw the phone when when I'm on not to go back to the voicemail thing, but like the eighth time I get told to press a, a number, right? You know, you start yelling. I'm like, what the fuck, you know, and then I right. then I get mad. So what am I gonna? I'm gonna lose my temper with a dog with, with a with an with armed a, dog a automatic, you know, with an M16 on its head. I'm gonna yeah. end up being the guy in that scene. <laughs> and it's, uh, Wilson makes a good point. He hates that a robot, that it was even a robot narrating the initial story. I know. We should actually talk about this with our guest. We should. We should. Do you want to introduce our guest? Uh, Our next guest, Erebin Greer, is the director of Fight for the Future and focuses a lot on surveillance and digital rights. Mm -hmm. Uh, Fight for the Future is a great organization. It's a group of artists, engineers, activists, and technologists who have been behind the largest online protest in human history, channeling internet outrage into political power to win public interest victories previously thought to be impossible. We fight for a future where technology is a force of liberation, not oppression. So very, very consistent with, uh, I, I think, Matt, you can get a lot of, you can just ask Evan your questions. She just may have some answers about uh, armed dogs. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe that could be their next project. Not, I'm not joking. I'm not making light of it. If you had to bet on whether or not Facebook Facebook ends up having armed dogs, what would you what would your bet be? Well, like within our lifetime. Yes. Amazon Unless for we sure is going to organize these things I'm talking about. Yeah, the screenings. These screenings, yeah. So Evan's going to talk to us about the Facebook whistleblower, about um, what should be done about Facebook, about privacy laws, about technology in general, and all that and so much more. Yeah. And also, I think another thing is just to tell us a little bit more about how these platforms work, because that's another consistent theme about this work. All right. So without further ado, Evan Greer. So really excited to have Evan with us. Boy, is the timing great. Uh, As viewers know, we just talked about gun-toting robotic dogs. We have in the news the fact that apparently Facebook is changing its name. Um, What? I didn't even hear this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Evan, do you want to do you want to start off? Actually, could you could you tell us about this? uh, This just happened or or help? I think there's a a piece in The Verge that came out yesterday. Yeah says that yeah at some event next week mark zuckerberg is going to roll out this like name change and that you know they want to distance themselves from being seen as a social media company and want to be the metaverse like whatever that means right um so it's hard not to see it as you know just kind of um signs that there are real cracks in the foundation there um is it a trial uh, balloon or is it actually happening I don't know. What would they call it? I feel like this is the name of the game, right? Like what, you know, 
We should come up with it by the end of the of the chat. It's on us, right. guys. Dam Zuckerberg damage control. <laughs> ZDC. We show what you what we think you want to see to sell more advertising.com. Yeah. <laughs> that I sounds like that. pretty good. I guess well, should we start with the the whistleblower? Sure, yeah. So okay, so first of all, who is who is uh it's it's Francis Haugen, right? Is that is that yep. my pronouncing that correct correctly? Mm -hmm. Uh what did she what did she do at Facebook and then what what were the circumstances that led her to come forward? Yeah, for sure. So and, and I I haven't even dug super deeply into kind of her background at the company. My impression is she was a data scientist. She did work on designing algorithms. Um and she was behind kind of that steady drip of Wall Street Journal articles that kind of pointed to essentially Facebook's own internal research where they're kind of trying to measure the actual impact of their products. And, you know, I think it, it's always challenging when we like look at stuff like this, because you're always kind of only getting like part of the picture. Um, you know, in some ways you could say it's good if companies are internally having conversations about, you know, the impact of their products, et cetera. Um, that said, I think what was like really helpful about the receipts, if you will, that Frances Haugen brought with her when she came to testify in front of Congress and with these documents that she released to the press is it has brought into focus the actual root cause of Facebook's harm. And I think this is really important because for like months and months and months and months and months, lawmakers and, you know, journalists more broadly and the public have kind of obsessively focused on speech, speech itself, you know, like, look at this terrible post that Facebook didn't take down. Um, look at this terrible set of posts that Facebook said they were going to take down, but didn't, right? Like, that's kind of been the nature of the conversation. And then on the other side, kind of like, Facebook took down my post, and I'm really mad about it, right? right. That's sort of been like the nature of the debate. And what I think Francis Haugen has helped us do is get past that into looking at the fact that the root cause of Facebook's harm is not that it's a platform that hosts speech or even a platform that hosts a wide range of speech. It's that they're using surveillance-driven algorithms to essentially show people the content that Facebook wants them to see in order to keep them clicking and scrolling and on the platform generating advertising revenue. That's what kind of makes Facebook uniquely different from TV or magazines or kind of things that have come before it. It's not the speech, it's the surveillance. And I think that that's really helpful because it allows us, you know, to kind of connect the dots for people. I think people have been having a hard time connecting those dots. They're like, all right, I'm mad about disinformation. I'm mad about uh, vaccine hesitancy. I'm mad about hateful content online. And connecting the dots from that back to the best way to stop that without creating new problems is not to regulate speech, but to regulate surveillance. Um, and I think that that moves us in a much more productive direction than the way the conversation has been going roughly over the last year or two. Or even longer than that, right? So for sure. I yeah. mean, so I saw you writing about that and I saw you tweeting about that. Do you think that people actually came away, though, from her her testimony with that? uh knowledge because my impression is that there are a lot of people who are who have enormous financial and political interest in people not coming to that realization for a variety of reasons right you know facebook because they want to keep making the money politicians because they want to control the speech facebook obviously doesn't want to go there because that's the how they make their money are people I mean, that story helped us if we wanted to see that truth but do you think people actually came away with that realization 
Yeah, you know, I mean, look, I'm not going to paint too rosy a picture of it. I think they're, you're absolutely right. There's still a lot of people who are attempting to seize on this moment, you know, some in really disingenuous ways that are just pushing, as you said, because they would like to control speech. I would actually argue that in some ways, it's the Republicans that are doing that more. They're kind of like, you know, they're trying to create compelled speech or like you have mm -hmm. to host our speech, right? Um, that said, um, you know, I, I think you look at, you know, we launched a campaign, how to stop Facebook.org. It's the largest coalition that we've pulled together in years. It's like something since perhaps net neutrality. And, you know, I think what we're seeing, and there was this big article in the National Journal, um, <clears throat> I guess yesterday too, that's basically showing like, the left is completely fractured when it comes to talking about things like Section 230, attempting to regulate algorithms directly, speech, but everyone agrees that a real federal data privacy law would significantly reduce the harm of these platforms. So I think it's like, you know, I'm not going to pretend that there's still not a lot of people saying either uh, well-intentioned but misguided things or um, deeply cynical, problematic things, but I think that we are, you know, just the political reality is shifting to the point that at a certain point, it's going to be clear that there's overwhelmingly more consensus around some type of data privacy fix than around anything that kind of tinkers with Section 230, attempts to directly regulate speech, um, because basically all of those issues run into a First Amendment size speed bump, where it's not actually Section 230 that allows platforms to host or moderate speech. It's the First Amendment. Um, Section 230 just sort of expedites that finding um, so that something like Wikipedia can exist without fending off tens of thousands of frivolous lawsuits every other day um, that would eventually get thrown out, but would bankrupt them first. So before we get into Section 230, which we need to get into, and the solutions that you're talking about, could you summarize what Haugen's revelations were? Um, what, if any of them were surprising, what the, the most disturbing ones were? Then maybe we can get into what her, which of her recommendations you think were good, which ones were bad. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, like I mentioned, you know, a lot of what the kind of news stories surrounding Frances Haugen's, you know, the documents that she released focused on kind of Facebook and particularly Instagram kind of measuring um, mental health. Facebook, right? right, right, which is owned by Facebook, you know, measuring things like mental health impacts on teens, uh, measuring things like, um, you know, when you create a new Instagram account, and then follow a certain, you know, like certain topics, what content gets recommended to you and, and showing things, you know, and again, some of this is like presented as if it's like surprising and nefarious, but it's like, it's not that surprising if you recognize the way that Instagram's business model works, that if you create an account and follow a couple accounts that are focused on extreme dieting, Instagram's going to show you more accounts based on that, right? I think in the past, again, we've sort of had this idea that like someone's sitting there behind the algorithms, like pushing you to the left or pushing you to the right. The algorithm doesn't care. The algorithm is an unthinking, like heartless asshole that just wants to show you whatever it thinks you want to see to keep you on the platform, right? Like that is the algorithm's goal. And so if you're into, you know, like my kid loves to watch, you know, videos of other people playing Minecraft and YouTube will just all day show her more videos of other people playing Minecraft because it knows that that's what she wants to see, right? Um, now, the harm of that is when you start to kind of like move people down a rabbit hole from, 
you know, like, okay, you watched this video. A lot of people who liked that video also liked this other video, et cetera. Again, I think a lot of the framing about this becomes problematic. Like I hate when people talk about like divisive content. I mean, like saying Black Lives Matter is divisive in a deeply racist white supremacist world, that doesn't mean it's wrong, right? So I, I think there's this idea that like things that are controversial, divisive, you know, emotional are inherently bad. That's wrong from my perspective. But again, I think what we're getting at here is the way that the algorithms distort the public conversation because they can artificially amplify content that's actually, you know, not a lot of people agree with or believe. And you start to get this sense of like, wow, a lot of people must be into this stuff because I keep seeing it. And that kind of creates this distortion of social discourse, which is really different from, you know, even just like looking at Twitter, which uses a lot less algorithmic manipulation than something like Instagram, you start to get a little bit of a better sense of like, you know, what's happening out there um, than if you're kind of in a filter bubble that's very algorithmically generated. I also think, you know, it's really important that we talk about algorithmic manipulation, not just algorithmic amplification, right? We focus, you know, we broadly, but many people focus on the speech that Facebook allows and amplifies rather than recognizing that they're also suppressing a lot of speech. And again, generally speaking, they're not suppressing it in some kind of like, you know, very specific politically targeted way. They're just turning down the volume on anything that doesn't generate ad revenue. And if that includes legitimate posts about climate science, like too bad. And I think we just need to be weighing that harm as strongly as we weigh the harm of what they're amplifying. If they're amplifying disinformation about climate change, um, that's problematic. But it, if they're suppressing the youth climate movement that's actually trying to do something about that, I would argue that's even more problematic. And I think that actually brings us back to like the robot dogs thing, right? Like I think about this, that like we need to think about not just what policies make social media better, but also what policies enable there to be a social media that we can use to make the world better, right? And if we enact regulations that maybe make Facebook a less angry place, but kneecap our ability to build the social movement that we need so that our streets aren't patrolled by murdering robot dogs, that's not a net positive for the future of humanity, right? And so I always just think we need to be asking ourselves, not just how do we make social media better, but like what policies do we need to have a world that's worth our kids growing up in? Um, you know, and I think those are two different questions and we're not going to get the right answers unless we're asking the right questions. So, I didn't actually answer your question about Francis no, Haugen yeah, either well, though. Sorry. Talking about answering questions and yeah. No, uh, I, I have a, just a quick technical question about Instagram versus Facebook because I'm not as on Instagram, but do I get, I get things on Instagram that aren't just from the people I follow. Is that correct? It seems like it's much more. Yeah. Like I mean, a lot of this stuff is really opaque. Right. And okay. so, you, you know, yes, you presumably will see some stuff that's maybe not from people that you follow, but it's also just curating even among the people that you follow, right. they're deciding kind of like, you know, people don't see everything that you post, right. They're deciding kind of like, in the feed, what you see and when you see it, um, again, in, in this quest to keep you on the platform. So, right. um, you know, and I think you see this more, you know, they've tinkered around this, like with Facebook groups where they started showing people posts from groups that they're not in yet, that they think you might want to be in, yeah. right? 
Um, and again, that's where it becomes very different. It's one thing to have a message board and, you know, a bunch of boneheads set up a group where they're doing bonehead stuff. It's another thing to kind of put your thumb on the scale and be like, Hey, you seem like you might be a bonehead. You want to come meet these other boneheads. Yeah. Right. And like, that's the difference. That's the difference between Facebook and a message board. Right. Right. And cause on Instagram, you can't share, right. Isn't that one of the biggest like it's a lot harder to share than Facebook. You just literally press share. I feel like Instagram, you have to have like third party apps and yeah, I mean, workarounds. They, which right. I there's think... all different kinds of stuff. And you can't link off of Instagram too. Cause again, right. they really want to keep you on Instagram. Like yeah. I don't want you clicking off of yeah, Instagram. Which is why it's so else. addictive. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. You know, and again, it's like, I think we need to think about all of these things as business practices, right? So like, rather than thinking about, again, like the speech itself, which just like any attempt to regulate speech comes with this Pandora's box of problems and always comes down to the question of like, well, who decides? And those social norms and laws and who's in power can change really quickly in really scary ways. Um, but when we start to think of, you know, algorithms and algorithmic recommendation as a business practice, then you start to recognize there's like ways that you can go after specific business practices without kind of undermining, uh, you know, freedom of expression globally, without kind of creating these choke points for censorship or creating these, uh, you know, requiring more surveillance or even, you know, uh, or, you know, one thing, for example, that Francis Haugen, you know, pointed out was that Facebook is systemically underinvesting in human moderation for everywhere except for the English speaking folks in the U.S., Right. So they spend a ton of money on human moderators to moderate content here in the US. If you live outside the US and you don't speak English, you're much more likely to be having your speech moderated by an AI. And we know that AI is essentially terrible at, you know, moderate, you know, if you think human moderators are bad um, and they take down more than they should, AI is even worse. Right. And so that's why, especially when we start talking about messing with Section 230, and we can get into that more in a second, but, you know, the impact is always going to be disproportionately on people who live outside the U.S. who don't speak English. And then even beyond that, particularly on Arab and Muslim folks who have historically had a lot of their speech auto-moderated by AI that's supposed to be looking for, quote unquote, terrorist content. Right. So here, you know, you can draw a direct line from U.S. war on terror, U.S. imperialism to Facebook and platforms like it auto-moderating tremendous amounts of speech of Arab and Muslim folks that live outside the U.S. who may just be posting like a line of scripture or something like that from the Quran. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when we start tinkering around the edges of U.S. laws, those are the people that get screwed. You know, we like I think like Democrats like believe that like, you know, it's going to be like the Alex Joneses of the world that, you know, are going to be silenced when you start tinkering around the edges of laws that protect online speech. But really, it's Arab and Muslim folks that live outside the U.S. It's sex workers. It's direct action activists. Uh, you know, it's left based anarchists and others who have historically been disproportionately silenced and marginalized by these platforms. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. All right. That was great. That's so yeah. we, we finally, we, we met a person who has stronger feelings about the first amendment than I do. Yeah. For the first time. I think it is true that broadly speaking, most people are against the surveillance capitalism model, right? Like they, they mostly hate it. However, it's almost all of, you know, commerce now, especially retail commerce. Right. So it's going to be incredibly difficult to get movement on, on this issue. 
feels like. To yeah. Me. Yeah, I know. It's pretty depressing. Also, I think that there is some resignation in like, OK, yeah, of course, we don't want the police to be able to have this uh, facial recognition and we don't want Facebook to be able to manipulate people, but that there is like some I don't know. I feel like some people are like, well, I don't do anything illegal. So who cares? Absolutely. There's that. Yeah. There's also and like, I want to be sent uh, a material that I'll like that. Well, that that's definitely true. There's a lot of people who just don't know how the algorithms work. Right. Don't care. I think there's also a huge number of people who would rather not deal with that and would rather just selectively go after the individual things that they don't like. Right. So then rather, rather than going, go after the practice, like let's, let's ban this kind of thing, or let's, let's create a commission to, to outlaw this kind of behavior, you know, this kind of speech or, or whatever it is. And so they're going to be, they're going to be affirmatively interested in not doing any reform on data surveillance because they, they actually want to approach the issue from another way. Like a lot of people have an interest in doing that. Right. Yeah, it's tough. Like I, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I agree that people got that was the lesson that they got out of the the, the Haugen thing. Because what I saw afterwards was just, see, well, like, you know, if you don't if you don't go in and and regulate the internet yeah. in this way, teenage girls are going to kill themselves. Right. Yeah. So there's going to be a lobby to prevent X kind of manipulation, right? Certain kind of speech, whatever it is, right? They, you know. They're going to go after the things that the, 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 that those teenage girls are reading rather than the practice of, of sending the teenage girl the stuff. See what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. Which yeah. is which is has nothing to do with the topic. It's just a mechanism. It's the same mechanism that will send me Boston Celtics videos. It is depressing. Yeah, I think this issue is incredibly frustrating. And we all, we've always talked about it with like people like Matt stoller before yeah. a little bit with sirota maybe but there's there's a there's a frustration here because most people everybody's incredibly online everybody has strong feelings about what they do and do not want to see nobody can agree on how they want to go about it and then on the, the layer on top of that is that all the lobbying you know these companies make such massive sums of money they can afford to lobby every politician uh to degrees that even even Wall Street was never capable of. Right. Uh, and so they're going to prevent anything that touches the model. So it's a difficult question. So I guess we can expect um, gun-toting dogs. Gun-toting dogs. Read this now in the next 15 seconds. Yeah. You have, fi- you have 15 seconds to, re- to read this extreme dieting article. Shit is dark. All right. So Which that's why that's I just it. watch the show and listen to the show. Exactly. Exactly. All right, that was uh, that yeah, was useful yeah. for this week. That so was thank, for this week. thank you for uh, tuning in, and uh, thank you, Evan Greer, and uh, follow Evan on Twitter at Evan underscore Greer. You can follow Fight for the Future. Yeah, that's Fight for the FTR on Twitter or Fight for the Future dot org. All right, do all those things, rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff, and we'll see you next week. Yeah. Substack. Okay. Useful idiots at substack.com. Useful idiots at substack.com. All right. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. 
You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash useful idiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at useful idiot pod and use the hashtag useful idiots pod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the useful idiots Monday morning show where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. I'm Michael Toscano, hoping you'll join me on the First Light Podcast. We get to the heart of the event shaping our world as our correspondents check in and we talk with newsmakers and people who can take us behind the headlines. The First Light Podcast, wherever you get podcasts.